Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking to Katrina Adams, who just ended her second term as president of the U.S. Tennis Association. Today, we talk about how being the first black and fourth woman leader of the USTA changed the way Katrina did the job, the pressure for American players to win championships, and that notorious Serena Osaka match. Thanks so much for being here, Katrina. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So usually I start off by asking, what are you in charge of? But I'll ask, what were you just in charge of? Well, I was a chairman and president of the U.S. Tennis Association, the governing body of tennis in America. And we really focused on getting rackets in people's hands of all ages. Our mission was to promote and develop the growth of tennis in America. Tell me a little bit about how the USTA works, kind of its structure and its purview. Yeah, so we were born as a volunteer organization. Uh, we have 15 members on the board, uh, and I'm the as a chairman and president, um, as a leader of that. And then the CEO reports to me. Uh, up until a year ago, I also held that title, chairman, CEO, and president. And it just so you reported seem, to yourself. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, but and and then our COO was our chief of staff. And so when I when I took office as the the youngest. Uh, fourth woman and first African-American, I said something doesn't sit right with three titles like that in, in this type of organization. So I set out a uh, governance task force to kind of relook at our bylaws and, and make some changes uh, as necessary and got that voted through at our annual meeting. Uh, one, uh, many of the things that were voted through and one was changing the title from the CEO, um, from the president to the chairman over to the chief of staff, which was then the COO. Gordon Smith. And so uh, Gordon reports to me or to our, that seat and then, you know, to the board. So all of those major roles, how are they different? Uh, so when you talk about the COO, who is now the CEO, he's a chief of staff. So he, he's hiring a senior staff. He's overseeing the day to day work as a chairman and president. I am communicating with uh, the person in that seat, the, the CEO, and stayed abreast of everything that's happening within our organization and, and giving my opinion and, and final approval or disapproval before we would move on with something. Did you see your role as uh, more of an ambassador or did you feel like, all right, I want like I, I want to make it, I want to know about every decision that's happening? I think it was a little bit of both. I didn't I wasn't a, a micromanager, that's for sure. So, um, you know, I trusted our staff to do their jobs. That's what we pay them to do and, and to bring me with the high level stuff that was necessary uh, to get my input or approval or insight or things that we needed to take to the board for approval. Um, so, yeah, I was definitely an ambassador for our sport and for the USTA, uh, something that I enjoyed doing and, and being the face of the organization and really going around the country and the world representing the USTA and the U.S. Open to promote tennis. Why is tennis so important to you? Uh, I'm a tennis player. I, I was born and raised in Chicago, started playing when I was six and never looked back. I uh, had a successful junior career, played high school tennis, was state champ twice in the state of Illinois, um, played on scholarship at Northwestern, uh, was an NCAA doubles champion at Northwestern, 12 years on a tour, um, eight in the world in doubles, 67 in singles, was a national coach, commentator, on Tennis Channel, et cetera. So tennis is in my blood through and through. Uh, and it's something that I, I know a, a fair bit about from multiple sides of the game and was able to really uh, contribute and attribute a lot to our success um, because of my experiences. I want to talk to you a little bit just about your management style. How many people reported to you? Uh, basically, Gordon Smith. Okay. who was the CEO. But okay. I had relationships and um, open communication with all of our staff. 
So how did you make sure, I mean, how did you make sure that your vision and your goals uh, were shared by Gordon? And how did you kind of, how do you let go of things and let him, um, you know, uh, do the work to carry some of that out? So I'm not a micromanager. Um, as I, I missed that I mentioned that earlier. So you know I rely on on you or whoever it is bringing me all of the information that's needed for me to make a, an educated decision on something. Um, if there if I don't feel comfortable with with what we're discussing, I'll ask for more information to to come back to me. Um, that's why I have a board, so I could also lean on board members who may have specialized in certain areas um, that I may not have had um, an expertise in. To have uh, you know great discussions and and back and forth and and that's how we worked. I mean, I do I did have the office of the president, of which um, Nella Navarez, who was my executive assistant, worked under me. So we we communicated on a daily basis, and then she had her own staff underneath her. But when you're talking about senior management, um, it was just the one, which was the the CEO. And what's your relationship to the players, to the professional? players uh i'm friends with all of them i mean i either played against them coached against them um, when i was a national coach uh being out there on a leadership level uh, everyone has respected me so from you know roger and serena down um i pretty much know if you're if you're at least 25 (laughs) and older i probably have a really good relationship with you uh definitely if you're 30 and over i know all of you do they come to you though and complain about stuff? Like, is that the? Do you want? Is that the? No, role? I mean, listen. It's not. That's not. Everyone knows who we are and and who uh, is responsible for what. So, yeah. uh, players are, are dealing with the general manager of player development, okay. or the or the chief of professional tennis, which is Stacy Allister, um, who's the head of the U.S. Open. So, it's just a matter of everyone knowing their part. Do I have players that will send me a text periodically and ask a question or moan about something? Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's them venting because they can um, with their relationship with me more so than actually thinking I'm going to do something about whatever. And for me, as far as doing something about it is making sure I'm communicating with them and reaching out to the proper person um, who's in charge of whatever area they may have in question and have them follow up and, and make sure that it's taken care of. Yeah. How important do you think it is for the leader of the USDA to be a former player? Well, you know, I'm the first one. So uh, that remains to be seen. I think it was, uh, you know, in some aspects, as you're dealing with certain um, things within the company and the organization, you know, we've in the last five years in particular, you know, we just had a $600 million strategic transformation of uh, the USCA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, which is the host of the U.S. Open. Um, and a lot of that is about player facilities and making sure the players have what they need um, to perform at their best, but also making sure that we're engaging our fans, our sponsors, our broadcasters, et cetera, with the facilities that they need. And so being a player and, and understanding um, all sides of that, I think, was uh, was very valuable for us. As we uh, proceeded, we also built a USTA national campus down in Orlando where we moved our community tennis down there. We have our USTA foundation, departments of our uh, diversity and inclusion, and other areas of the business are in Orlando. And again, it's about communicating um, with our constituents, our stakeholders, and making sure that 
first their voice is being heard, but also it's being heard by someone that really understands some of the challenges and or successes that they're having um, in, in growing tennis and, and putting rackets in hands. The voices that you want to be heard are players, fans. Who, who are you talking about? Well, the voices on the U.S. Open side are players, fans, yeah. broadcasters. On our community side and, and, and what our mission is about, it's it's really our players and our stakeholders, our partners when it comes to manufacturers like our tennis industry um, that's out there that are selling the products to, to our players. Uh, it's the tennis clubs that are, you know, that are hosting our our players. It's the parks and recs that are providing the courts for our players. So if we're not listening to our players that are coming into the game, that are in the middle of the game or leaving the game on what makes them tick, yeah, both positively and negatively, then we're missing the boat and we're not really providing them with the best services and the best products that we can um, as consumers of our sport. So when you came in, what were the things that you heard immediately that were problems? I won't say that there were problems. I mean, it's always a challenge of growing growing a sport. Uh, when you look at all of our sports right now, um, when I say all of our sports, you're looking at football, basketball, baseball. You know, sports are in decline for participation. And it's all because of that little device that we keep in our hand, in our pocket, in our purse every day. Um, it's, it's Everything is digital. You know, eSports is really um, taking a toll on our traditional and non-traditional sports that you, you literally have to get off your butt and go out and sweat. And, and so that's the challenge that we've had. We, we started a new youth brand called Net Generation, um, which was to really kind of ignite and excite our, our younger generation to want to get out there and play. It's not a program. It is a brand. It's something that uh, many of our providers have to uh, sign up for. And, and part of being a provider for a net generation, you have to go through our safe sport uh, training. Um, so if I'm, if I'm a club, I'm a provider, I'm a, I'm a member org, I'm a provider to our consumers that are coming in. And um, we want all of our teaching pros at these particular locations to make sure that they have had background checks and they have passed their safe sport training, um, which will give you as a parent a comfort in knowing that the person that is spending a lot of time with my child, um, I can trust. You know, we live in a different world. And when you look at our, uh, the USOC and what's happened in many of our national governing bodies, we at tennis and at the USTA want to make sure that we are providing the safest environment for our competitors and, and one that's enjoyable and, and making sure that going through the net generation program with our providers signing up, at least we know who's actually working with our kids because it's an individual sport, because the coaches are individually contract. They don't work for the USTA, but we're providing the programming for many of these clubs and parks um, and facilities um, to run our USTA programming. What makes a good coach? Uh, that's a very good question. I think, first of all, someone who is well-skilled and well-trained um, in knowing what a good tennis player needs as far as mechanics and tactics and technique, but even more so a good personality, someone that you can communicate with, someone that you can have fun with, um, someone that you can trust. And, you know, a lot of times as you're developing as a competitive tennis player, you end up spending a lot more time with your coach along the way than you do your actual parents. And so this is definitely a person that you as a player want to be able to uh, look up to and respect and trust. Um, you know, a lot of times they end up being like an uncle or an aunt 
depending on the age difference um, between the player and the coach. But even more importantly, it's the parents want to be able to know that they can trust you to take their child to uh, tournaments around the nation as necessary and as needed. So I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is, I think you said a $600 million uh, transformation, yes, of the U.S. Open facilities. Yes. So you said being a tennis player helped you, you think helped you kind of understand what players needed or what players need. How, what is the learning curve for figuring out how to deal with $600 million? (laughs) Because I'm assuming you don't get that from being a tennis player. So, you know, initially it was really about building a roof on Arthur Ashe Stadium and and going through uh, the RFPs for many years. I mean, we just didn't get, arrive at the roof that we have. We probably started, you know, five years before that, 10 years before that, and talking about getting a roof on the largest tennis stadium in the world. Um, with this open circumference that is larger than life and and making sure that the stadium could support it. So once we decided that we finally found the best technology and the best architect to do that, we knew the numbers that we were dealing with. In that process, we were also looking at rebuilding the entire facility, everything but the bowl of Arthur Ashe Stadium. Um, So once you know what those costs would be, along the way, then you can start to budget and figure that out. And so it's really about breaking it up into different tranches of borrowing because we borrowed our money, our money from uh, banks. Yeah. It's not, uh, you know, it's not public funding. It's not government funded. Um, it's not membership funded. It's money that we borrowed and we have to pay back. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I've been on the board for 10 years prior to being in that seat. And, um, you learn, you read, you learn, you have conversations, and you you get it. Was a lot of your job convincing the board and the people around you that this was the way to go? No, because those decisions had already come in before I took the seat. So I was just the one that was happened to be in that in the chair when these projects were being completed. So uh, I've I was a part of those boards for sure in making those decisions and. Um, you know, and nitpicking and, and cutting back and, um, you know, evaluating value out um, of certain budgets up front. But it's something that it's a collective decision. It's not just my decision or the chair's decision as to moving forward with it. But again, we have a very competent staff that brings you all the details that are necessary, the, the pros and the cons um, of anything that we do, particularly when, it's, when you're talking about putting resources behind So you said one of the challenges when you came in, um, kids and devices. Uh, what 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 were the other big ones? Um, I think for me, when I came on, um, I wanted to focus on three key areas. Um, one was a Hispanic initiative and making sure that we had a plan in place to uh, invite, engage, and retain um, a Hispanic culture in our sport fastest growing demographic in the U.S., but yet it was the smallest participation um, culture that we had. And so it was really making sure that we had the right messengers going out with the right message in all these different um, diverse communities, because unfortunately, too many people want to link all the Hispanic and Latino cultures into one. And they're coming from all different backgrounds around the world. And you have to make sure that you're making them feel welcome you're making them feel wanted. You're making them feel appreciated. You're making them feel excited um, and also making them feel like it's something that they can succeed in. 
And and so that was a, a big task. It took a year, year and a half just to even try to get that engagement kit that we were able to put together. I put together a Hispanic engagement advisory group um, that was chaired by one of our board members, Fabricio Alcobo Fierro from, from Miami. And we had 12, 15 different committee members from different Hispanic backgrounds as well to be able to come together and say, how can we make this successful? And we had about a 12% growth, um, which was good. We still have a long way to go. In terms of kids who are signing up to be part of Just kids and adults, period. Okay. Kids and adults, period, that are, we're actually signing up for, um, for, for tennis, uh, you know, making sure that we actually created new opportunities in schools in their communities where they didn't have tennis. We have a large schools program around the nation. And we wanted to make sure that we started targeting these different communities, but not just where the schools were, but to make sure that they had a chance to have a pathway, that there were after-school programs somewhere, that there was a park program somewhere that they could continue to develop as players. Um, So that was uh, my number one initiative, and I I think we were able to do uh, good work in that. You know, we kind of fell back in the last year or so uh, with our administration putting a lot of pressure on a lot of these cultures and and communities and to where people didn't want to sign up and and provide information that might harm, you know, their generation above them. And um, but we haven't given up. We'll continue to to make sure that they know that they are, they too are part of our sport. Um, also wanted to build on the high school kids. You know, we had about 350,000 high school participants in, uh, around the country and probably 100,000 competitive juniors. And so how do we fix that? How do you get those 300,000 players, high school players, playing competitive tennis outside of their high school season? Okay. So... Um, in order to do that, you had to make sure that you provided more opportunities for these players. Because when you think about high school sports, many of these recreational players are multi-sport student athletes. So they'll play tennis for this season. They'll play basketball this season. They'll play volleyball that season, whatever those seasons may be. And we wanted to find opportunities for them to stay competitive outside of their high school. And this is not your elite players that are playing, you know, your sectional and national players. These are truly your recreational players. I'm on the team because you, my best friend, are on the team. Um, But so because it's a sport for a lifetime and it's it's one of the healthiest sports out there. How much about attracting kids or retaining kids in the sport is about like what you were talking about, accessibility or affordability? And how much is just about like sort of selling tennis as a you know, as a cool and fun thing to do? I think it's all of the above. First yeah. of all, we, we work hard at being accessible. We are accessible to, you know, every age from, you know, 6 to 96, uh, from able-bodied to non-able-bodied to autistic and adaptive youth. So there are opportunities out there, you know, even going into the Special Olympic program. So we are an accessible sport. We are a an inexpensive sport to get engaged with because of all the programs that I mentioned. Um, we have but a people huge, don't think that, right? They don't think that. We yeah. have a huge network um, called the National Junior Tennis and Learning Network and over 250 chapters nationwide that are in mostly, mostly underserved communities. 
And these particular programs are free. And they're not only providing tennis, but they're providing academic support as well. But again, you're talking about kids to just get engaged in a sport and, and what have you. And a lot of times you as a parent say, let me find an after-school program for my child. They put them in tennis. They think it's great for them for developing life skills, et cetera. And then the kid becomes good. And the parent's like, I didn't plan for this. You know, I had no idea that my child was talented or would even love the sport. I just needed to find a program that was safe and this, that, and the other. And then they developed to be a player, and now they're starting to compete. So it's, it's as you rise in the competitive ranks of our sport where the cost comes in, as does most other sports. People don't talk about basketball being expensive when your kid is on the AA travel team or the soccer AA travel team and all these other sports with travel teams. There's a lot of cost involved, but people don't talk about that because they only see it as a playground sport. Tennis is the same way. As you become competitive, there are costs that come with it. I think I wonder if the difference is, I'm just thinking as a parent myself, like you pay this, whatever, you pay what it costs to be on a soccer team and you know the 15 other kids on the team are paying it too. But like I, my son took a year long uh, tennis clinic last year and it was thousands of dollars for, you know, for the year. And it seemed like a lot of money to me. Because it's just like your relationship with this private coach who's telling you how much it costs and you don't have anyone like you have sort of no you're just on your own. You're kind of doing it on your own. You're on your own. But it's a matter of also it's where you live. Yeah, it's it's your choice to be with maybe this coach coach that may be more expensive than this private (laughs) coach. And you'd rather go five miles away than to go 10 miles away for somewhere cheaper. So it's your choice as to how you're doing it. But there are often ways that you don't have to spend a lot of money to develop to be a competitive player. At the professional level, I imagine, uh, whether fair or not, you personally or the USTA is judged based on wins and championships. Uh, Is that fair? And is is that part of how you think about your job? I so I don't think champions. the USTA is judged on winning championships. We are the national governing body of sport, and our mission has been stated. Um, when you look at the U.S. Open, we would love to have American champions on the finals weekend. We would love to have American champions winning because those are eyeballs on our sport that would help engage the younger generation to want to be like the next Serena or the next Sloan yeah. or the next Lindsay or the next, you know, Andy Roddick. Andy's our last male champion to win. So it is important for us on the professional side for there. Uh, we do have a USCA player development division, which is really spending a lot of resources and time in helping to uh, develop the next champion alongside their own personal coach. So oftentimes their players have their own coaches at home. Our national coaches are assisting um, these coaches in their development or these players will come down to our national campus uh, for training and their personal coach is able to come with them to to see uh, the program that's in place for them and try to duplicate that going back home. Um, But so, yeah, there's pressure on that. We are the leading nation when it comes to top professionals in the top 100, both men and women. So if you look at the rest of the world with Spain, Russia, et cetera, we're number one. So we're doing our job in getting the players to these different platforms in the rankings. Um, You look at our young men, 
that are coming up. Everyone's concerned about when's the next male champion. Yeah. We've got a great group of, you know, 25 and under that are, are making a push. Mackie McDonald, Francis Tiafo, Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka. Um, these guys are, are young. They're up and coming and they're battling week in and week out, having some great results. Uh, Francis Tiafo got to the quarters of uh, the quarters, fourth round of the Australian Open. We're beating a couple big players along the way before losing to Rafa Nadal. And what a, a huge stage for him and for young players to see, wow, if he can do it at 19, 20, 20, he turned 21 while he was there. Um, so can I. And Taylor Fritz is, you know, they grew up together competing and battling week in and week out. And he's also on that push. Is the USTA trying to, like, I don't. You can tell me. I don't know the history of this, but like, did you guys know that the Williams sisters were out there with their dad, like, <laughs> getting great? And and are you trying to kind of recruit talent into USTA programs? Or that, of course, the USTA knew that the Williams sisters were out there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's tennis. It's yeah. not. Yeah. It's it's a. But very, I mean, they didn't come through the, the USTA program. No, right? but most champions yeah. didn't come through the USTA program. I mean, but do you most, want them to? Didn't. Like, are well, you trying to recruit in that way? Is that part of? It's not so much recruiting. We're assisting. Okay. So we are assisting. If you, a top player, need assistance, a top junior player, so we're not going. We're not an academy. Yeah. So we're not going and trying to get you to come and live at our academy. Yeah. That's not who we are. We are uh, a program that provides uh, mental training you know, videography, uh, fitness, coaching, everything that you need to be the best player, we are offering it to you. Come to our home at the USCA National Campus. And we provide uh, what we call camps or mini camps. Probably every weekend there's some type of camp that's going on for 12 and under kids all the way up to, to, our, to our professionals. Um, providing that opportunity so they can take what they've learned there back to their home courts, back to their home club, and implement it into their daily regimen and constantly communicating that way. So uh, it's not so much about not having Venus and Serena under the USTA. It wasn't necessary for them. Not everyone needs that. And it's not that we're trying to claim that we have a part in everything, but we are available and we are supporting Team USA Tennis. Uh, I read, I think this was, yeah, a 2016 story you were quoted in the Times talking about the U.S. Uh, needing to, or you wanting the U.S. to dominate the Fed Cup again. I'm going to just like read the quote. I think you said, reimagining the team captain role was required to help reestablish the United States as, this is the quote, the greatest nation in competitive tennis. So what did that reimagining entail? And is it still happening as an ongoing well that's part of what we're doing with our usta player development um okay. part of the facility that we have that is providing you know you know top-notch uh facilities for for our players um you know at that time when our our then captain mary joe fernandez stepped down it was time to go after you know look for a new captain uh, typically it was a position that was appointed by the sitting chair and I was not going to have any part of that as a former player. Every potential captain were friends of mine or acquaintances. Oh. And I wasn't going to be the one that was just, you know, picking a name out of a hat, if you will. So and we created a committee of a former player, a current player, um, our general manager and our head of professional tennis to uh, come up with a criteria 
for the potential captains and, and a rigorous interview process. Um, Venus Williams was that current player at the time who had played Fed Cup for, for many years. And, um, you know, and they ended up appointing and, and choosing Catherine Rinaldi, who has done a remarkable job. You know, in year one, she won the Fed Cup title. Oh. Uh, year two, got back to the finals. We fell short this year in the first round to a very tough um, team from Australia. And, um, but, you know, we'll, we'll get back. But we are the leading nation um, of titles for, for Fed Cup. And hopefully we'll continue, you know, to be the leader going forward. So probably not the most important day of your tenure, but definitely probably, I would assume the most high profile day would have been the Serena Osako match. Um, Can you just like take me through what it was like to be watching that as a, as a fan, but a person in your position? Uh, Well, you know, in all honesty, I didn't see it because not live. Um, You're talking about the debacle and the, yeah, yeah, so... You know, at 4-3 in the second set when Osaka had just broken um, Williams, where my seat is, it's on the opposite end of the stadium. So I got up to go down to be closer to courtside, um, thinking that the next game would be 5-3 and, you know, could possibly end at 6-3 or 6-4. Yeah. And so uh, I kind of missed all of the the rumble jumble stuff. I saw it on television, but I wasn't there live. I did hear the commotion from the fans as I was underneath in the bowels of the stadium, not knowing what was happening or what had transpired until I got out to courtside and I look up and it's 5-3. And I was like, I just left and it was 4-3. So what happened? So um, I didn't see it live. So I can't, you know, I. I don't have a response for what I was thinking or what I saw. It was more about what I saw in the video afterwards. But, um, you know, it's an unfortunate situation all around. Um, things happen. You know, when it talks about the rules of the game, the rules were followed by the chair, and he made his calls, and uh, it is what it is. Serena didn't like it very much, perhaps overreacted in in, in her response, um, you know, and it kind of left – the situation at hand, which was the finals of the of the U.S. Open, but um, you know, kudos to Osaka for even being able to keep her composure to close out the match. And you know, Naomi Osaka is the reigning U.S. Open champion, and it was her first Grand Slam, and yep. it was a moment that it's definitely one that she won't forget for more than one reason. Was there work you had to do afterwards? Like, are you reaching out to the players and the coaches and the ump and Well, I mean, I have PR. my own relationships with, <laughs> with them. So obviously uh, it was a long night of just really trying to uh, assess what actually happened. Was there anything that could have been done differently? But it would, whether it could have been or not, it doesn't matter. We are a sport that's in real time. Uh, when it comes to officiating, the, the chair umpire is – is ahead um, and calls were made and, and it is what it is. And, you know, the behavior of the players, they have to act accordingly knowing what our code of conduct is. So, you know, for me, I would say the next day, the night was long and the next day was busy and follow-up media, um, ESPN, I think, on Sunday and CBS this morning on Monday and several calls in between. Um, but that's behind us. It's something that you you – don't ever want to see again and you try to figure out how do you get ahead of potentially not having this happen going forward and it's really about communication 
Um, you know, we have the best officials in the world at the Grand Slams. Carlos Ramos was one of the best officials, which is why he was on the women's match. And um, he, he called it by the letter of the book for him. From the warning to the point to to the game, uh, the the one in question is the warning, and and many felt, um, including myself, that there should have been a soft warning. What we call a soft warning is warning the player on the sideline and not actually calling it going into the code, um, because all coaches are, are coaching, both coaches, all matches, all day, every day. And if he was seeing activity, you know, tell the players, look, I'm seeing activity from your boxes or your box. You know, the next time I'll have to I'll have to call a warning. And that didn't happen. It's a it's a final of a Grand Slam. So I I think that's where the where we all felt that that could have been different, which would have never escalated to where it ended up. Was there messaging afterwards to to umpires about like how it could be different next time like is that a well we all have our own associations we have our chief of officials for the USTA yeah. um, but again these are these are not just USTA officials these are ATP WTA ITF USCA officials yeah. that are all coming together at a grand slam and I think the the lesson learned is making sure that as we convene at all the grand slams around the world the US Open Roland Garros Wimbledon Australian Open that they are very clear and consistent on how they are calling the matches worldwide. Yeah. Um, so you're first, as you said, you're the first black head of the USTA. There was another first, oh, first player. How does that? How did that impact the way that you that you did the job? Um, I think it impacted. You know, one is we kind of talked about the ways as being that player coming in and, and understanding it, the lingo and the people, uh, everyone involved. I think. Um, as a female, it's, it's as a fourth female, um, it was an opportunity to really come in with a personality and an approach of compassion um, and, and empathy in a lot of ways, depending on what those conversations were or, or the situations may be, um, that our male counterparts, counterparts perhaps would not approach in the same way. Um, and I think from a diversity uh, perspective, it's, it's seen... Someone like me at the helm gave a lot of hope and pride to African-Americans and people of color, um, not just in the U.S., but all over the world to understand that, you know, an organization like the USTA can evolve. Um, we have changed over the decades um, from from the woes of the USLTA when it was a white only sport and African-Americans and people of color were not allowed to participate in their tournaments and, and play in their clubs. And so, yes, we've come a long way, um, which is why the American Tennis Association was born, which is why, you know, the successes of people like Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe have meant so much to the African-American community. So to have me at the helm and, and you know, to have in, in my way, in my own eyes, Althea and Arthur looking down and, and, and nodding um, in affirmation um, of being able to lead the sport and to leave a legacy and an indelible mark on, on what we have achieved and what we can still achieve going forward, hopefully by the seeds that I've planted, um, is huge. And it's about diversity and inclusion. So, you know, having an African-American at the top is great. Also having a woman at the top. And, and we, we communicate very differently um, in so many ways. We understand a lot of our situations and 
we're more inclusive, period. You know, we embrace all. And, and, and I think that's something that the USCA has strived for in, in recent years, in the last decade in particular, with our diversity and inclusion department, is making sure that we embrace all. So now you're on your way out. Are you worried about any of that work uh, not moving forward? No, I think um, I think I got, you know, 100 percent buy in from from staff, from our constituents, from our stakeholders and understanding how positive it can be. And listen, you're talking about it when you talk about the Hispanics, you're talking about a one point three trillion dollar culture of spending power. Why are they not more engaged in our sport? You know, the African-Americans, one point one trillion dollars. It's it's the writing is on the wall of of and stop thinking that people of color are poor and that people of color can't afford to do X, Y and Z. There are professionals of every culture and background that are out there that play our sport. So if we stop paying, quote unquote, pity to these cultures and really start to embrace the entire culture, it's not that all Caucasians are wealthy. They have the same communities that all of the other cultures have, whether it's different socioeconomic levels. So we have to make sure that we're providing opportunities for those at the top, the middle, and those that are working their way up. Katrina Adams, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Women in Charge. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. And please send feedback on the show and suggestions for guests to womenincharge at slate.com. Thanks to producers Jessica Jupiter and Cleo Levin. Thank you to Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And thank you all for listening. 